Hello and welcome to the Rhetorical Leadership Podcast. This is uh, the podcast where you can learn what you need to know to give a persuasive and compelling speech and how you can lead people by persuasion. And today we're going to be talking about what, uh, something called procatalepsis, which means anticipating counterarguments. Persuasion, unlike other forms of communication, is meant to change someone's opinion or behavior. And this is uh, what uh, Chris Anderson writes about that in his book about TED Talks, the official guide. He writes that uh, if explanation is building a brand new uh, idea inside someone's mind, persuasion is a little more radical. Before construction, it first requires some demolition. Persuasion means convincing an audience that the way they currently see the world isn't quite right. And that means taking down the parts that aren't working, as well as rebuilding something better. When this works, it's thrilling for both speaker and audience. So the first thing you have to do in order to actually change someone's mind, though, is to be able to create a connection with your audience. You have to be able to first understand your audience and how they see the world. As Kenneth Burke writes in, who's a rhetorician, Kenneth Burke writes in A Rhetoric of Motives, you persuade a man only insofar as you can talk his language by speech, gesture, tonality, order, image, attitude, idea, identifying your ways with his. So, to a certain extent, of course, you want to change the audience, but you can first only change the audience if you are a part of them. True, the rhetorician may have to change, this is the quote again, the rhetorician may have to change an audience's opinion in one respect, but he can succeed only insofar as he yields to that audience's opinions in other respects. So, the audience's worldview and their opinions are the levers that the speaker can use to persuade them that a certain aspect of their worldview may not be quite right. So a speaker must first yield to the audience and show a common bond with the audience in order to move the audience. And one of the most powerful ways of doing this is by articulating the audience's objections in such a way that they feel their views have been fairly represented. One of the most successful examples of this is Barack Obama. When he was um, running for election in uh, 2008, so a audio and video recordings of his uh, pastor, Jeremiah Wright, had just been released, in which uh, Jeremiah Wright called America a racist nation. Of course, this made uh, a lot of uh, voters uncertain about uh, Barack Obama, because this was his pastor, this was the pastor at the church that he attended in Chicago. And the question was, how could he make sure that he doesn't alienate his black audience while at the same time um, showing that he could understand the fears and the concerns of the white audience. And what he did was give a very remarkable speech on race, in which he first described the roots of this anger in the black audience, and then proceeded to describe how white people, very working-class white people, felt about all this, and especially felt that they were being scapegoated or being blamed for things that they had no power over. 
the anger is real. It is powerful. And to simply wish it away, to condemn it without understanding its roots, only serves to widen the chasm of misunderstanding that exists between the races. In fact, a similar anger exists within segments of the white community. Most working and middle-class white Americans don't feel that they've been particularly privileged by their race. Their experience is the immigrant experience. As far as they're concerned, no one handed them anything. They built it from scratch. They've worked hard all their lives, many times only to see their jobs shipped overseas or their pensions dumped after a lifetime of labor. They are anxious about their futures, and they feel their dreams slipping away. And in an era of stagnant wages and global competition, opportunity comes to be seen as a zero-sum game in which your dreams come at my expense. So when they are told to bus their children to a school across town, when they hear an African-American is getting an advantage in landing a good job or a spot in a good college because of an injustice that they themselves never committed, when they're told that their fears about crime in urban neighborhoods are somehow prejudiced, resentment builds over time. Like the anger within the black community, these resentments aren't always expressed in polite company, but they have helped shape the political landscape for at least a generation. Anger over welfare and affirmative action helped forge the Reagan coalition. Politicians routinely exploited fears of crime for their own electoral ends. Talk show hosts and conservative commentators built entire careers unmasking bogus claims of racism while dismissing legitimate discussions of racial injustice and inequality as mere political correctness or reverse racism. And just as black anger often proved counterproductive, so have these white resentments distracted attention from the real culprits of the middle class squeeze, a corporate culture ripe with inside dealing, questionable accounting practices, and short-term greed, a Washington dominated by lobbyists and special interests, economic policies that favor the few over the many. And yet, to wish away the resentments of white Americans, to label them as misguided or even racist without recognizing they are grounded in legitimate concerns, this too widens the racial divide and blocks the path to understanding. So here we can see that uh, Barack Obama was able to uh, describe the frustrations and resentments that were built up in certain white communities in such a way that uh, at least he was able to diffuse the tension built up by the release of these recordings of the uh, sermons by Jeremiah Wright. He was able to show that he understood both the sides of this issue and that there were ways of uh, bringing these people together and was able to promote his view that more needed to be done for racial equality in America, while at the same time understanding that it should not come at the expense of um, of working class people, of, of white people, who uh, felt very often that uh, they were the ones who were asked to 
bear the burden of all these injustices. Because he did that in such a way, um, he was able to build a coalition that made it possible for him to win the presidency and to retain it in 2012. The thing about using or anticipating counterarguments, this is what the Greeks called prokatalepsis, doing this well means that you understand the uh, show that you understand your audience it underst- you understand the people that you are trying to change the mind of the uh, opposite of this is to make a uh, straw man argument that's when you essentially make a caricatured version of the counter argument and then proceed to knock that down this is not persuasive at all to the people that have that other view it may only be persuasive to a third audience who aren't a, who don't quite understand what the other view is, and because of the, your misrepresentation, representation, may be able to take um, your party or your be on your side against this third party. This, of course, uh, stops working as soon as the other party has a chance to defend themselves. Another advantage of uh, addressing counterarguments or um, being able to anticipate counter-arguments, is that you don't leave yourself as open to rebuttal. In uh, the uh, Shakespeare play Julius Caesar, we see a good example where um, where Brutus, after he, has, uh, he and the senators have killed Julius Caesar, goes out to defend his actions to the Roman people. But what he, f- n- he says that he slew him because he was ambitious, meaning that Caesar wanted to become an emperor and wanted to destroy the republic, which may very well have been true, but he expected that that was a fact that was so well grounded and so well known among the people that he didn't need to substantiate it. Marcus Antonius goes afterwards and attacks that exact point that he failed to anticipate. He failed to anticipate a counter-argument from Marcus Antonius, partially because that was Marcus Antonius had promised just to give a funeral oration for uh, Julius Caesar and not actually to attack Brutus and the other senators and what they had done. But uh, in this case, so here we'll hear the uh, speech written by uh, Shakespeare to represent the historical moment where Brutus explains the slaying of Caesar to the Roman people. friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer. Not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Had you rather Caesar were living and die all slaves than that Caesar were dead to live all free men? No! No! As Caesar loved me, I weep for him. As he was fortunate, I rejoice at it. As he was valiant, I honor him. But as he was ambitious, I slew him. As tears for his love, joy for his fortune, honor for his valor, and death for his ambition. Who is here so base that will be a bondsman? If any speak for him, have I offended? Who is here so rude that would not be a Roman? If any speak for him, have I offended? Who is here so vile that will not love his country? If any speak for him, have I offended? So as we can see, 
he uh, uses the rhetorical devices of um, amplification to play again on this point that you need to love your country, that Caesar was ambitious, that Caesar wanted to bring the Romans into slavery to destroy their, their basis of freedom. But he never used any evidence to back up that point. And this is a weak point in his speech that Marcus Anthony knows to take full advantage of. And so the drama unfolds. He was my friend, faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honorable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this and Caesar seem ambitious? When did the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept? Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honorable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal, I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure he is an honorable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. You only love him once, not without cause. What cause withholds you then to mourn for him? Oh, judgment, thou art led to brutish beast! And men have lost their reason. And with this speech, uh, as uh, the character of Marcus Antonius unleashes the dogs of war against Brutus and the, the senators, and um, whether or not this is historically accurate, in the play, this is what leads the uh, Roman populace to be turned away from the senators and a republican or democratic restitution, a restoration, and towards Mark, Marcus Ant and Antonius, um, and uh, later the first Caesar Augustus, the one who becomes the first real dictator of Rome without any recall options by the Senate. So I hope I've been able to show you that uh, anticipating counter-arguments is important and being able to do it properly uh, both disarms your opposition and makes you connect much stronger with your, with your audience, makes it pos a possibility for your opposition, in fact, not to become an opposition, but for them to join your cause, to, to be persuaded, to be moved towards your point of view. And uh, if you don't do this, you leave yourself open to rebuttal. And as uh, Julius, is or as uh, William Shakespeare uh, showed in uh, Julius Caesar, that can have fatal consequences. Thank you for listening to the Rhetorical Leadership Podcast, and uh, I'll uh, come again with uh, more material next week.